Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker, and today's sermon, featured from this week's readings, is on the withering work of the Spirit. It's a sermon that was delivered on the Lord's Day morning of the 9th of July, 1871, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It's the 999th sermon that was published in the new Park Street pulpit. And if you're wondering where 1000 is, uh, then a day or so back we published a lively reading of that sermon, number 1000 or Bread Enough and to Spare. If you're listening to this, hopefully you either have listened to that or will be able to do so as well. You will also know, if you're a regular here, that what we do is work our way through Spurgeon's sermons. We do that on X or Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can sign up at mediagratii.org podcasts. Find From the Heart of Spurgeon, among the other excellent podcasts that they produce, and then sign up for a newsletter where you'll get the weekly readings sent to you so that you can follow along. This week, we're reading from Sermon 997 to 1003, and next week, it's 1004 to 1010. And next week's featured sermon is 1004, bought with a price from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 to 20. But back for this week to Sermon 999 on the withering work of the Spirit, and it's one of Spurgeon's multi-texted sermons by which I mean that he has uh, two textual references. The first in this case is Isaiah 40, 6-8. The voice said, Cry. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And then alongside of that, Spurgeon puts 1 Peter 1, 23-25, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Now, Spurgeon is not averse to using more than one text for one particular sermon, and he does so in a number of different ways at different times. Sometimes he'll uh, show you sequence and develop a particular theological thread, perhaps uh, a sequence of Christian experience or uh, the relationship of one doctrine to another. Sometimes there's uh, just connection or overlap. Sometimes there's contrast. In this case, he has not only Isaiah, but also Peter quoting Isaiah, and he does so for some particular reasons which he sets out in a fairly lengthy introduction. He says that the passage in Isaiah may be used as a very eloquent description of our mortality, and you could preach a sermon upon it from the frailty of human nature, the brevity of life, and the certainty of death, and it would be very appropriate. But he says, I don't think that that discourse would strike the central teaching of the prophet. Something more than the decay of our material flesh is intended here. And that's where he's going to show us what uh, Isaiah is saying and that the, the way that Isaiah handles this language, this image, 
squares better with the New Testament exposition of it in Peter, which he says I've also placed before you as a text. And his suggestion then is that Peter has landed on what he calls uh, another and more spiritual meaning beside and beyond that which would be contained in the great and very obvious truth that all of us must die. He also wants to show us that this isn't Peter playing fast and loose with Isaiah. What's the subject of the chapter in Isaiah? It's the divine consolation of Zion. Zion's been tossed to and fro with conflicts, has been smarting under the result of sin, and the Lord bids his prophets announce the coming of the long-expected deliverer. In order to make room for the display of the divine glory that will come ultimately in Christ Jesus and his salvation, there would come a withering of all the glory wherein man boasts himself. The flesh should be seen in its true nature as corrupt and dying, and the grace of God alone should be exalted. This would be seen under the ministry of the Baptist first, and should be the preparatory work of the Holy Ghost in men's hearts in all time, in order that the glory of the Lord should be revealed and human pride forever confounded. Now, we sometimes uh, we sometimes say that we don't think Spurgeon's got everything right. We sometimes say that he's accused of things uh, that he may not be guilty of. And I think here it's a reminder to us that when people casually and cavalierly dismiss Spurgeon as no exegete, he actually works hard to understand the text that he's handling. He's trying to make sure that he's faithful to the word of God. He'll often say that there are different, if you will, levels of meaning or different degrees of meaning, that it could mean this on the surface, it's got this spiritual substance to it. Uh, He might say that it would have meant this uh, to the Jewish nation when it was first preached to them, but we want to take it as referring to the new covenant Israel of God. Uh, Those are the kinds of uh, categories and, and distinctions that he's willing to make. But you see him here wrestling with Isaiah in the light of Peter. So you've also got a reflection here of his convictions about the the word of God itself, the the nature of the Bible, the inspiration of the apostles, as well as the Old Testament prophets. It's a really fascinating insight into the way that uh, Spurgeon's hermeneutic, his principle of interpretation, works. He wants us to understand then that reading from Isaiah in the light of Peter The spirit blows upon the flesh, and that which seemed vigorous becomes weak. That which was fair to look upon is smitten with decay. The true nature of the flesh is thus discovered. Its deceit is laid bare. Its power is destroyed, and there is space for the dispensation of the ever-abiding word and for the rule of the great shepherd whose words are spirit and life. There is a withering wrought by the spirit, which is the preparation for the sowing and implanting by which salvation is wrought. And that's when he goes back to John the Baptist. Most appropriately, he carried on his ministry in the desert, for the spiritual desert was all around him, and he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He was the one who hewed down rather than who planted. The axe by his ministry was laid to the root of the trees. Stern as Elias, Elijah that is, his work was to level the mountains and lay low every lofty imagination. And when our Lord himself appeared, the uh, the messenger had gone before him and now the Messiah himself comes, he came into a withered land whose glories had all departed. 
And so as he comes with this whole economy of Judaism, a worn out vesture, grown old and ready to vanish away, we, we have this a declaration then of the Spirit revealing spiritual things. Such are the facts of history. I'm not about to dilate upon them, says Spurgeon. He, I, I'm not trying to, to um, I'm not going to spend time dealing with these things. I want to talk to you about your own personal history. The Spirit of God, like the wind, must pass over the field of our souls and cause our beauty to be as a fading flower. So here's the next step in Spurgeon's hermeneutical and homiletical approach. Hermeneutics, the principles of interpretation. Homiletics, the principles and the, the practice of teaching. Spurgeon has gone from uh, the, uh, the Isaiah in his context to unpacking precisely what Isaiah means, not just on the physical but on the spiritual level. He's tried to do that in the light of the way that Peter handles Isaiah. He's shown how that happened with John the Baptist when he came and what Christ came to in a withered, spiritually withered environment. And now he's moving it down another degree and he's bringing it up close to us. The Spirit of God must so convince us of sin and so reveal us to ourselves to ourselves that we shall see that the flesh profits nothing, that our fallen nature is corruption itself, and that they who are in the flesh cannot please God. There must be brought home to us the sentence of death upon our former legal and carnal life in order that the incorruptible seed of the Word of God implanted by the Holy Ghost may be in us and abide in us forever." With that in mind, and you see how he's now moved to the point of the sermon that he intends to preach, he's going to address two particular elements, the withering work of the Spirit upon the souls of men, and then a few words upon the implanting work, which also always follows where this withering work has been performed. The first of those is the vast bulk of the sermon following on from this uh, quite unusually lengthy introduction. So then, the work of the Spirit in causing the goodliness of the flesh to fade. And he's got seven points here. And the intention as he works through these points is really to expose false refuges, to teach us our genuine need of a saviour, the, the bringing low by the Holy Spirit of the proud heart. The first of these is then that the work of the Holy Spirit upon the soul of man in withering up that which belongs to the flesh is very unexpected. What shall I cry? said the prophet. Even he didn't know that in order to comfort God's people, there must first be experienced what Spurgeon calls a preliminary visitation. This is how he explains it. Many preachers of God's gospel have forgotten that the law is the schoolmaster to bring men to Christ. They have sown on the unbroken, fallow ground and forgotten that the plough must break the clods. We have seen too much of trying to sow without the sharp needle of the Spirit's convincing power. Preachers have laboured to make Christ precious to those who think themselves rich and increased in goods, and it has been labour in vain. It is our duty to preach Jesus Christ even to self-righteous sinners, but it is certain that Jesus Christ will never be accepted by them while they hold themselves in high esteem. Only the sick will welcome the physician. It is the work of the Spirit of God to convince men of sin 
and until they are convinced of sin, they will never be led to seek the righteousness which is of God by Jesus Christ. I am persuaded that wherever there is a real work of grace in any soul, it begins with a pulling down. The Holy Ghost does not build on the old foundation. So there's this, uh, you might almost call it shock and awe to some extent. The awakened sinner, when he asks that God would have mercy upon him, is much astonished to find that instead of enjoying a speedy peace, his soul is bowed down within him under a sense of divine wrath. Naturally enough, he inquires, is this the answer to my prayer? I prayed the Lord to deliver me from sin and self, and is this the way in which he deals with me? I said, hear me, and behold, he wounds me with the wounds of a cruel one. I said, clothe me, and lo, he has torn off from me the few rags which covered me before, and my nakedness stares me in the face. I said, wash me, and behold, he has plunged me in the ditch till mine own clothes do abhor me. Is this the way of grace? Spurgeon, pastorally, wisely, evangelistically, Sinner, be not surprised, it is even so. Do you not perceive the cause of it? How can you be healed while the proud flesh is in your wound? It must come out. His point is that God cannot cleanse you until he has made you see somewhat of your defilement, for you would never value the precious blood which cleanses us from all sin if you had not first of all been made to mourn that you are altogether an unclean thing. And this convincing and convicting work, then, is unexpected. And that's true, says Spurgeon, even to the child of God in whom this process has still to go on. It can be startling to us if we're Christians. We begin again to build that which the Spirit of God has, has destroyed. Begun in the Spirit, we now act as if we'd be made perfect in the flesh. And he quotes this uh, insightful hymn by John Newton. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favoured hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Newton goes on to uh, to show how the Lord explains, as it were, that uh, this is the way that he answers prayers for grace and faith. But his point here is that this is the way that God is pleased to bring both sinners who do not yet know him and his people who need to have their own pride exposed to the end of themselves, and he does so in a startling and unexpected way. His second point under this first heading is that this withering is after the usual order of the divine operation. In other words, this is how God works in his people. We shall not be astonished that he begins with his people by terrible things in righteousness if we consider well the way of God. He talks about the method of creation and says that there's a parallel in the new creation. When the Lord new creates us, he borrows nothing from the old man but makes all things new. He does not repair and add a new wing to the old house of our depraved nature, but he builds a new temple for his own praise. We are spiritually without form and empty and darkness is upon the face of our heart, and his word comes to us saying, Light be, and there is light, and ere long life and every precious thing. Or, 
when man has fallen, when did the Lord bring him the gospel? The first whisper of the gospel was, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Everywhere before salvation comes, comes the humbling of the creature, the overthrow of human hope. It was so in the days of Noah. It was so in the days when God brought Israel up out of Egypt. The old must go before the new can come. Even thus the Lord takes away the first that he may establish the second. The first heaven and the first earth must pass away or there cannot be a new heaven and a new earth. Then the third thing. I would have you notice thirdly that we're taught in our text how universal this process is in its range over the hearts of all those upon whom the Spirit works. The withering is a withering of the flesh as a whole, the very choice and pick of the flesh, the goodliness thereof. What happens to the grass? All of it withers. So wherever the Spirit of God breathes on the soul of man, there is a withering of everything that is of the flesh, and it is seen that to be carnally minded is death. Everything that belongs to to human righteousness, everything that belongs to human pride must come down. When the Spirit of God breathes on us, that which was sweet becomes bitter, that which was bright becomes dim. A man cannot love sin and yet possess the life of God. If he takes pleasure in fleshly joys in which he once delighted, he is still what he was. He minds the things of the flesh and therefore he is after the flesh and he shall die. We cry to be delivered from the poisonous joys of earth. We loathe them and wonder that we could once riot in them. Beloved hearers, asks the preacher, do you know what this kind of withering means? Have you seen the lusts of the flesh and the pomps and the pleasures thereof all fade away before your eyes? It must be so, or the Spirit of God has not visited your soul. And he says, our righteousness withers as our sinfulness. Before the Spirit comes, we think ourselves as good as the best. But when the Spirit of God blows on the comeliness of your flesh, its beauty will fade as a leaf, and you will have quite another idea of yourself. You will then find no language too severe in which to describe your past character. And there's more. Away must go our boasted power of resolution. Most people conceive that they can turn to God whenever they resolve to do so. But when visited by the Spirit of God, we find that even when the will is present with us, how to perform that which we would, we find not. Yea, and we discover that our will is averse to all that is good, and that naturally we will not come unto Christ that we may have life. What poor, frail things resolutions are when seen in the light of God's Spirit. Still the man thinks that he can find his own way back to God. Ah man, thy wisdom, which is the very flower of thy nature, what is it but folly? Spurgeon's point is, as he concludes this third element, the universal process uh, in its range over the hearts of those in whom the Spirit works, is that when the withering wind of the Spirit moves over the carnal mind, it reveals the death of the flesh in all respects, especially in the matter of power towards that which is good. It empties us of self. The faith, then, which justifies the soul is the gift of God and not of ourselves. That repentance which is the work of the flesh will need to be repented of. The flower of the flesh must wither. Only the seed of the Spirit will produce fruit unto perfection. The heirs of heaven are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of man, but of God. 
If the work in us be not the Spirit's working but our own, it will droop and die when most we require its protection, and its end will be as the grass which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven. There's a fourth point under this first heading. The universality has been stated, but notice the completeness of it. The grass, it withers. The flower of the field, it fades. There's no reviving of it. For how many months and years was the Spirit engaged in writing death upon everything that belonged to the old John Bunyan, in order that he might become by grace a new man fitted to track the pilgrims along their heavenly way? Now Spurgeon's wise here. He says we've not all endured the ordeal so long as Bunyan, but in every child of God there must be a death to sin, to the law and to self, which must be fully accomplished before he is perfected in Christ and taken to heaven. The old nature never does improve. It's as earthly and sensual and devilish in the saint of 80 years of age as it was when first he came to Christ. It is unimproved and unimprovable. Towards God it is enmity itself. Every imagination of the thoughts of the heart is evil and that continually. Spurgeon's referring here to the the battle, even in the most mature saint, against the, uh, the remaining sin of our hearts. He goes on, here's the fifth of those seven headings under the main heading. All the withering work of the soul is very painful. I think those who experience much of it when they first come to Christ have great reason to be thankful. Their course in life will, in all probability, be much brighter and happier. For I have noticed that persons who are converted very easily and come to Christ with but comparatively little knowledge of their own depravity have to learn it afterwards and remain for a long time babes in Christ and are perplexed with matters that would not have troubled them if they'd experienced a deeper work at first. He uses an illustration of the great mercy for the city of London when the great fire cleared away all the old buildings which were the lair of the plague and a far healthier city could then be built. And it's a great mercy for a man when God sweeps right away all his own righteousness and strength, when he makes him feel that he is nothing and can be nothing, and drives him to confess that Christ must be all in all, and that his only strength lies in the eternal might of the ever-blessed Spirit. God then does not intend to graft the system of grace upon corrupt nature, nor to make the new Adam grow out of the old Adam, but he intends to teach us this, You are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Salvation is not of the flesh, but of the Lord alone. That which is born of the flesh is only flesh, at the best, and only that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. There's nothing that can be in the flesh, of the flesh, in regard to our salvation, for if so, there would be a division of the honour between the flesh and the spirit. So give up your own self-confidence, says the preacher, and let the work be, and the merit be where the honour shall be, namely with God alone. Now I think that last point, that it's the the honour of the Spirit to wither, may be Spurgeon's sixth heading, but um, at least in uh, the edition that I'm using, uh, we go from five to seven. I wonder if either he's misnumbered that, and it's uh, meant to belong to point number five, or if that in itself is point number six, But the seventh heading, at least in the text, is that the last word by way of comfort is to those who are passing through the process we are describing. 
It gives me great joy when I hear that you unconverted ones are very miserable, says this man, for the miseries which the Holy Spirit works are always the prelude to happiness. It is the Spirit's work to wither. The Spirit of God it is that withers the flesh. It is not the devil that killed my self-righteousness. If it were, I might be afraid. Nor was it myself that humbled myself by a voluntary and needless self-degradation. It was the Spirit of God. This is not cruelty on the part of the preacher. This is actually loving kindness. This is a man who knows that unless the, the infections cut away, there can be no healing. And so when someone is spiritually brought low, Spurgeon says that's the preacher's joy because he knows that that's the prelude to happiness. He doesn't delight in misery for its own sake, but he delights in that spirit-worked withering, which is the precursor to a lifting up. Blessed be the Holy Ghost when he kills me, he says, when he drives the sword through the very bowels of my own merits and my self-confidence, for then he will make me alive. I wound and I heal. He never heals those whom he has not wounded. Then blessed be the hand that wounds. Let it go on wounding. Let it cut and tear. Let it lay bare to me myself at my very worst, that I may be driven to self-despair and may fall back upon the free mercy of God and receive it as a poor, guilty, lost, helpless, undone sinner who casts himself into the arms of sovereign grace, knowing that God must give all and Christ must be all and the Spirit must work all and man must be as clay in the potter's hands that the Lord may do with him as seemeth him good. Rejoice, dear brother, however low you are brought, for if the Spirit humbles you, he means no evil, but he intends infinite good to your soul. You see how Spurgeon is emphasizing here the emptiness of man and the fullness of God in Christ as it's revealed in us by the Holy Spirit. It's a really excellent example of a pastorally searching sermon as he exposes the the false ideas to which we will often take re, in which we will often take refuge now i said that's the main bulk of the sermon there really isn't very much to go just these few sentences concerning the implantation he says that according to Peter, although the flesh withers and the flower thereof falls away, yet in the children of God there is an unwithering something of another kind. And this again is the, the, the brilliance of using Isaiah and Peter alongside one another because it enables him to make this application in the way that he does. The gospel is of use to us, he says, because it's not of human origin. If it were of the flesh, all it could do for us would not land us beyond the flesh. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is superhuman, divine and spiritual. In its conception it was of God. Its great gift, even the Saviour, is a divine gift and all its teachings are full of deity. If you, my hearer, believe a gospel which you've thought out for yourself or a philosophical gospel which comes from the brain of man, it is of the flesh and will wither and you will die and be lost through trusting to it. It is God and God alone who is able not only to give but to work this gospel, to implant it, the Holy Spirit working in our souls, to say as a result, I believe it, I grasp it, on the incarnate God I fix my hope, the substitutionary sacrifice, the complete atonement of Christ is all my confidence, I am reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus." If you can say that, says Spurgeon, you possess this living seed within your soul. 
And what would be the result of that? Well, you're a new creature. There's a new life. You're as much new creatures at your regeneration as if you'd never existed and had been for the first time created. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The child of God is beyond and above other men. Other men do not possess the life which he has received. He, Spurgeon, many of you will know, has this uh, emphasis that the, the new man is of a triple nature. Spurgeon's sense is that before conversion, we are body and soul creatures, but after conversion, we are body and soul and spirit. Uh, and he says that that's the fresh principle, the spark of the divine life, which has dropped into his soul. Now, you don't need to uh, embrace uh, Spurgeon's triple nature uh, idea in order to believe that there's a new creation by the work of the Holy Spirit, but that's how he will uh, typically frame it. And then he emphasizes that as a result of that new life, you have something which is incorruptible, which lives and abides forever. You cannot get the good seed out of a true believer's heart. You may have a natural life and that will die because it's of the flesh, but now you have a spiritual life. Of that it is written, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. You have now within you the noblest and truest immortality. You must live as God himself lives in peace and joy and happiness. And so having done the, the, the withering work, as it were, having tried to press home upon us the nature of the Spirit's operations, both in the unconverted and in the converted, to bring us low, to expose our need, to make plain the, the weakness and the foolishness of the flesh. Now he's pressing upon us the blessings of those who receive the Holy Spirit uh, and his work in our hearts. May God, he says, the ever-blessed Spirit visit you. If he be now striving with you, he pleads, O oh, quench not his divine flame. Trifle not with any holy thought you have. If this morning you must confess that you are not born again, be humbled by it. Go and seek mercy of the Lord. Entreat him to deal graciously with you and save you. He says, respect this quickening seed, reverence it when you hear it preached and receive it to yourself. And remember that it's wrapped up in this sentence, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. Here then is, is Spurgeon, the, the experimentalist if I can put it that way, the, the man who understands the work of God in the heart of a man. And he's trying to explain that, trying to work that through, trying to hold it before us so that we appreciate both what we need and what we might have or, or what the Holy Spirit might be doing in us. He's Spurgeon, the pastor, trying to make sure that people don't despair falsely but do, if you like, despair for the right reasons of their own human wisdom and strength. Spurgeon the evangelist, trying to impress upon us our need of Jesus Christ as Saviour and the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in bringing us to, to see and to know that Christ himself. It's a great example of a, a searching ministry, and I hope then a blessing not only to those of us who are hearing it as men and women, but to those of us who are learning from it as preachers. We must move on, say goodbye for today. As I mentioned next week, God willing, Sermon 1004, bought with a price. 
Until then, God bless you, and may we know that unwithering and unwitherable seed planted in our hearts by the Holy Spirit.